Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? Our intent is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this rapidly evolving outbreak by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. These podcasts will be produced weekly or as often as necessary as we monitor the fluid nature of COVID-19. On this episode, I'm joined by members of IDSA's coronavirus expert panel, Drs. Angela Hewlett and Andre Khalil from the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit, and Dr. Mark Rupp with the Nebraska Quarantine Unit. All are experts on infectious disease outbreaks and have been evaluating some of the repatriated Americans quarantined on the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Thank you all very much for being here. Earlier this month, 13 Americans who were passengers on the Diamond Princess cruise ship were brought to Omaha, Nebraska, where they were tested for COVID-19. 11 of those passengers tested positive for the virus. 10 passengers were sent to the National Quarantine Unit on the campus of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, three of which were sent to the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit, also on the University of Nebraska Medical Center campus. Since that time, UNMC has received additional patients with COVID-19 as well. Why were these facilities chosen, Dr. Hewlett, to receive the passengers from the cruise ship? Well, we have two facilities here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center that are designed for two different purposes. Uh, One is the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit, which actually opened in 2005. So we've been here for quite a while. And this is a a specialized facility that is designed to care for uh, patients with highly hazardous communicable diseases. Um, And in particular, we we have some unusual uh, engineering controls in the unit, uh, things like uh, like autoclaves and negative pressure and things like that that make our unit a bit different from a regular hospital area. And that unit is specifically designed to care for patients, um, in particular critically ill patients. And we also have the National Quarantine Center, which is uh, actually just opened in 2019. And this is a 20-bed unit that is designed for monitoring of individuals that have been exposed to uh, to highly hazardous infectious diseases, and so we have these two facilities on the in, in our um, in our healthcare system that are essentially you know there for this exact type of scenario. Thank you, Dr. Hewlett. Dr. Khalil, I'd like to turn to you now. What is the difference between the National Quarantine Unit and the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit? So the uh, the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit is develops to. Um, admit patients that need to be hospitalized. So uh, patients that uh, uh, normally would, you know, not only uh, have the infection, but um, uh, require a hospital care. So patients in the quarantine uh, would be similar to as, you know, being outside a hospital, being home in the sense that they don't require any kind of hospital care. And also in the biocontainment unit, we uh, we can provide not only hostile care, but we we can provide intensive care uh, as well. Can you elaborate on which patients were sent to which facility? I'll let Dr. Hewlett uh, explain that. Sure. So I I can answer that. So so initially, as you mentioned earlier, we had 13 Americans that were medically evacuated off of the Diamond Princess and brought to us for care. Uh, Some of those individuals ended up, um, and they were assessed actually, and determined whether they needed medical care versus just needed monitoring. And we had a, uh, actually out of those initial 13 individuals, we had 11 of those folks that were confirmed positive initially. Um, And then two that were uh, high risk exposures, but not confirmed positive. And so we assess the patients on arrival and determine what 
what unit would be best to place these patients. There were patients that were put into the biocontainment unit who uh, were ill enough to require medical care. But then the majority of the individuals actually went to the quarantine unit where we had two that were under actual quarantine services, so not, not sick individuals and negative as well for testing. Um, but then we also had several individuals that were, uh, were confirmed positive but had either were asymptomatic or had very mild symptoms. And so those individuals were also placed in our quarantine unit, but they did not require any medical intervention. So it's really a decision based on the, um, the acuity of the patients, the, their symptoms, and whether they need um, medical care and which facility they should go to. Thank you, Dr. Hewlett, for that. Dr. Rob, to you now, can you describe the care and monitoring of the passengers who were sent to the National Quarantine Unit? Sure. So um, within the quarantine unit, as uh, Dr. Hewlett has related, uh, these are um, uh, persons who are not requiring hospitalization or inpatient care. And so they are um, in a facility that is uh, secure. It has negative pressure air handling and has isolation capability. Um, the folks who were under observation there um, were carefully watched. Um, they are allowed to continue to take their standard medications and over-the-counter meds and um, other simple things, but they're really not um, needing acute inpatient care. So they're watched um, very closely. Um, vital signs are monitored periodically, and obviously they're um, in close proximity to the National uh, Biocontainment Unit, the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit that Dr. Hewlett mentioned. And if they do develop signs and symptoms of illness requiring inpatient hospitalization, then they are transferred over to the biocontainment unit. So we, um, we do have folks in the surveillance unit that um, have mild symptoms. So some of them have some low-grade fevers or a little bit of cough, but uh, this wouldn't be uh, at a level of severity that would uh, require any kind of inpatient care. And then within the uh, biocontainment unit, obviously those folks who are at a much higher level of acuity and under uh, constant uh, monitoring of their uh, uh, vital signs and under close observation and uh, getting the care that they need. Back to you, Dr. Hewlett. How much notice did you receive at the biocontainment unit that the passengers would be sent to your facility? We suspected that we may receive patients from the Diamond Princess as soon as we found out that those evacuations were planned. Um, this was a, a very rapidly evolving situation that moved very quickly. Uh, we received confirmation of, um, of the fact that patients would be transported to us uh, less than 24 hours in advance. And so, you know, the, we were, had been preparing, though, to receive patients just out of the thought that we may receive medically evacuated patients uh, with uh, COVID-19, similar to as we received medically evacuated patients with Ebola virus disease in 2014. That's a great segue for my next question, Dr. Hewlett. Were the preparations different from those you made before receiving those patients back in 2014 with Ebola? There were definitely similarities in preparation, mainly just in team management, um, you know, uh, uh, ensuring that we had appropriate staffing for the units. There some dissimilarities, though, as well, just because Ebola is a very different disease. Uh, you know, it's obviously transmitted in a different way as opposed to COVID, uh, which is, you know, transmitted primarily via the respiratory route. And so there were some differences in protective equipment, um, differences in, in um, you know, in planned clinical management. But also we, we did have a, um, you know, a, a new, our, our new quarantine unit, which did not exist in 2014. So 
Um, so at this time, we were having to prepare two clinical sites uh, for monitoring as well as care of patients, which was different than, than in 2014. Thank you for that, Dr. Hewlett. Back to you, Dr. Rupp. Can you tell us now how many patients are still currently at the National Quarantine Unit and the Biocontainment Unit? Um, yes. So we are pleased that uh, many of our uh, patients or guests uh, in the quarantine unit have improved and have been um, released from quarantine and um, are back home. And that's uh, great news for everybody. Uh, we currently have one person who's in our biocontainment unit, and we have seven people who are in the uh, quarantine unit. So a total of eight, and uh, seven folks have uh, cleared quarantine and have uh, gone home. Great news there, Dr. Rupp. A follow-up question now for you. What is involved in their care? And a top-of-mind question for so many in the field right now is how are you ensuring that healthcare professionals that are caring for those patients are protected from infection? Yeah, so from the infection control standpoint and the protection of our healthcare providers, um, that's obviously critically important and foremost in our minds. Um, not only would we want to um, you know, provide necessary and adequate care for all of these patients, but we need to do it in a safe manner and we need to do it in a way that's safe for the community. So um, all of the uh, patients that have cleared the quarantine have demonstrated uh, clearance of their viral infection. Um, they're afebrile and they've had three samples that have been um, shown to be negative for the uh, COVID-19 virus. So all of these folks were very confident are over their infection and are safe to be released. Now for the healthcare providers, uh, we likewise want to make sure that they're in a safe environment. Uh, part of this is just the engineering of both the biocontainment unit as well as the uh, surveillance and quarantine unit. So the air handling is uh, specialized, it's negative pressure, it's uh, gone through HEPA filtration before it's exhausted. So um, there's a lot of air turnover. So in that and of itself provides a very safe environment for the providers there. In addition to that, um, this cadre of volunteers are, are very highly trained. Uh, they go through periodic uh, refresher courses and um, periodic um, training. So everybody is very comfortable with what we call PPE or personal protective equipment. So um, the donning and doffing procedure as well as the uh, PPE. So um, we're very confident that again, our providers are, are uh, taking care of these patients in a, in a safe way. I understand, Dr. Khalil, that you're working on an experimental drug protocol for COVID-19 at the biocontainment unit. What can you tell us about your research so far? Sure. So this is a um, randomized uh, clinical control trial that uh, is sponsored by the NIH uh, in which uh, we're going to have what's called a adaptive design. Uh, what means that we're going to potentially uh, try uh, to test several different therapies that uh, have the potential to uh, um, you know, treat these patients with COVID-19. So this, the first uh, potential therapy that uh, we like to use is called Rendesivir. Uh, so it is a medication that has a uh, uh, potential to reduce the viral replication. It's a um, uh, nucleotide analog, so in some ways uh, prevents the the replication of the uh, nucleic acid uh, of the virus. And so the idea here is we have data in vitro 
also data from a um, uh, couple of different animal species, uh, and uh, we have uh, some data uh, also from Mars and uh, first SARS. So it seems that this medication has um, a significant activity uh, against the coronavirus in some different species as well. So we elect to use this medication as our first potential therapy. So the trial is going to randomize uh, half of the patients, approximately 200 patients, to remdesivir, and the other 200 patients are going to receive an identical placebo. The medication is given through an intravenous uh, line uh, for 30 minutes a day for 10 days. What makes also this trial uh, uh, a little bit different from some other traditional trials is that uh, the the goal of this trial is really try to uh, provide uh, the, the trial to patients that need the most. These are going to be patients that have a moderate to severe COVID-19. Uh, what I mean about this is that these patients should not only have the diagnosis of COVID-19, but they should also have um, clinical or radiological signs of pneumonia from the virus. So they, they have to have uh, more severe illness in order to participate in a trial. And the reason for that is because about 80 to 85% of the patients uh, tend to have mild disease and they tend to clear the infection by themselves without uh, any uh, need for any therapy. So the goal of the clinical trial is to focus on the patients that have a higher risk of death and so uh, they can benefit the most from the clinical trial. Are you hopeful, doctor, that you'll find a cure for the virus? I'm very hopeful that we'll find a cure for the virus. We, uh, you know, we uh, we're going to start with one medication, and we potentially going to roll in several medications. The way that the adaptive trial works is that, let's say, if this if remdesivir turns to be beneficial by the primary outcomes of the study, remdesivir is going to move to the control arm. We're going to bring another medication and test another medication, and so forth. So the the beauty of the design of this study is that we can test sequentially. Uh, different therapies, and so the uh, the hope is that with that design, uh, we're going to be able to really uh, bring uh, some new therapies um, against um, COVID-19. This next question I'd like to pose to all of you. Our understanding of the virus and its spread appear to be developing rapidly. Dr. Hewlett, do you see this becoming a pandemic? Yes, I, I definitely see this this as a pandemic, just in the spread that we've seen in this illness um, over the last couple of months. I mean, obviously the you know the cases started in China, but now we have multiple multiple countries um, with uh, with individuals, multiple cases. Um, so yeah, so this is I, I would definitely qualify this as a pandemic. I guess I, I feel like that we're we're certainly more prepared to handle um, the care of patients with these type of diseases. Um, than we were, say, in 2014, prior to the Ebola uh, epidemic. And mainly, I, I feel like that's secondary to some improvements that we made at that time in uh, healthcare preparedness, uh, particularly with the National Ebola Training and Education Center, where we established um, training, education, uh, site visits, that sort of thing, for various healthcare facilities to uh, allow them to, you know, to uh, enhance their preparedness for management of um, a variety of diseases, not just not just Ebola. And at that time, there were uh, there was a tiered approach actually given to hospitals where there were uh, regional treatment centers. So now we have ten regional treatment centers in the United States that are capable of handling um, sort of biocontainment level pathogens, as well as a multitude of assessment hospitals and frontline health healthcare facilities. And 
NETEC has made multiple site visits to those um, those uh, facilities and to, in order to enhance preparedness. So I do think that we're more prepared than we were in 2014. That being said, pandemic planning is um, definitely a, a, a different process altogether and really involves an all-in approach from all healthcare facilities um, that will utilize community resources, um, just, you know, it's a lot more comprehensive, say, than caring for a handful of patients, which really was what we did in 2014 when um, a, several healthcare facilities cared for Ebola patients. And so I, I do feel like that we have a strong public health infrastructure in the United States, but in a pandemic, we will definitely encounter things that we did not encounter in 2014, like, you know, supply issues and bed shortages and, and burden on healthcare facilities and things like that. So uh, this is a uh, definitely something that we haven't, we haven't encountered before, in, uh, at least in, I uh, shouldn't say that, I, I should say that in our lifetimes, we have not encountered before. Dr. Rupp, would you like to weigh in on this as well? Well, sure. Um, you know, to address uh, whether this is a pandemic or not, you know, I, I understand the reluctance of certain uh, entities to not use the uh, word pandemic because it does have some emotionality attached with it and, and some level of uh, fear or hysteria that can be invoked. But as uh, Dr. Hewlett has related, um, you know, this virus has demonstrated the ability to spread far, fast, and wide, and we need to take it very seriously. And so, um, you know, we, we certainly are uh, well along with uh, pandemic planning. Uh, most organizations went through this uh, either with uh, avian influenza scare or the H1N1. Um, uh, influenza from a few years back. And so uh, all organizations need to be taking those pandemic plans uh, off the shelf, dusting them off, and really uh, looking at how they can prepare for this. And as Dr. Hewlett related, you know, we have to anticipate that we're not going to just have a few patients coming, but that uh, we may have widespread community uh, involvement. And therefore, all organizations really need to be thinking about how are they going to uh, encounter sick patients, uh, many of them, how do we uh, triage them, uh, get them out of our waiting rooms into safe ways that we can uh, uh, evaluate them, how do we ramp up our ability to test for this virus, which is currently one of the major uh, problems that we're having is that we just don't have the capacity to test all of the people that we need to be testing. Uh, because really only through a, a good diagnostic test are we going to know the extent of the spread already in our country and likewise be able to uh, start to take care of those people and to put appropriate um, public health measures into place to try to uh, mitigate the spread. Because um, we're all very hopeful that uh, Dr. Khalil and his trial will uh, show us the way forward and give us some medications uh, to treat patients. But until then, uh, we're really stuck with um, measures that we've known about for 100 years as far as um, isolating people, quarantine, uh, trying to uh, get some social distancing, uh, preaching hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette, um, and a variety of those types of measures that hopefully will buy us some time and help to stem the uh, uh, progression of this uh, epidemic or uh, more accurately a pandemic. And lastly, Dr. Khalil, do you have anything to add to this discussion? No, I, I agree with both Dr. Hewlett and Dr. Rupp in the sense that uh, 
you know, the definition of is more semantics. It is out there, and we uh, we have to be prepared for the worst. I mean, if if it turns out that the outbreak slows down, great. We'll be very happy seeing this outbreak going away. But uh, we have to be prepared for the worst, and and the worst is going to be a pandemic. So I think that's the way that we have to face at this time. Thank you for that answer. At this time, I'd like to open the floor, doctors. Is there anything else you would like to add? Well, I would um, just, again, sort of reiterate that, um, you know, this is a time where we still have just a little bit of uh, time to prepare, uh, that we need to be counseling our patients and the public to take on some common sense measures to, uh, to be ready for this. Again, we don't want to invoke panic and fear, but we do want to uh, have people um, treating this seriously and to prepare for how they would potentially uh, shelter in place if schools were closed or workplaces were closed and they were told to uh, to stay home for uh, a period of time. Um, from the healthcare perspective, again, there's just a lot of preparations that we can be doing and uh, and are doing to um, uh, you know make best use of our personal protective equipment. Uh, figure out how to triage large numbers of patients and to care for them. So uh, there's a lot of work uh, that is being done and yet to be done. Also, if if you allow me to add, to add one last thing. So with you know with with, with uh, concerning to the science and the research that happened in a situation like an outbreak, I just want to uh, emphasize the needs to the hardcore science. What I mean about that is that you know in times of outbreak, as Dr. Rupp mentioned, sometimes uh, emotion, uh, the emo, you know, the emotional aspects are so intense that uh, it's it, it's sometimes you know hard to reason and understand what needs to be done, and so we cannot compromise in the science. Uh, in in you know in the middle of outbreak, sometimes uh, you're gonna have uh, people coming with all kinds of alternative therapies, magical therapies, uh, fantastic therapies, and and. And you know, in the desperation of the moment, um, people are going to be given things that they don't know if the medications or the potential medications can work or can harm. There's only one way to find if something works or not for this virus is doing a proper science, and the proper science is having a randomized controlled study. Without controls, we'll never find what works or not, what doesn't work for coronavirus and what harms and what doesn't harm. So we, I just want to make sure that we, you know, everyone listening understands that if you want to benefit your patient, uh, try to offer a uh, clinical trial that um, has um, a, the scientific grounds that are needed for this. Yeah, one of my favorite sayings, Andre, is never waste a good crisis. And this is clearly an example where uh, even though we're in a crisis mode, we hopefully can gain some useful clinical information from your trial and really uh, push things forward. Just to quickly add to what Dr. Khalil mentioned, uh, you know, regarding you know different products, there's also a lot of misinformation out there, um, you know, not necessarily regarding therapeutic agents, but lots of other things too. And so, I just wanted to emphasize the importance of seeking, you know, good information through trusted and good medical resources. And that's not only for, you know, for healthcare workers, but, um, you know, patients as well. And so just emphasizing the need to go to the reputable websites, reputable, you know, um, uh, places for information to make sure that you're getting the most up-to-date information, but also, um, also not spreading misinformation as well. I've seen a fair amount of this, and especially in the age of social media, you know, it's very, very easy to, um, you know, to spread misinformation, and that causes panic. It, it doesn't do us any good, and so we need to be very 
strategic about making sure that, you know, when we as healthcare workers are passing on information that we're giving our patients and our, our colleagues um, the, you know, the best uh, information that's available. Some excellent advice there, Dr. Hewlett. At this time, I'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Drs. Angela Hewlett, Andre Khalil, and Mark Rupp. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 outbreak, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next week as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest developments on the outbreak.